0: Take your Bible, please, and and uh, meet me in Daniel chapter one. Daniel chapter one. The Old Testament book of Daniel. Uh, it's uh, it, it, it's a range, It's in one of it, it's in the uh, prophetical section of your Old Testament. About 10 years ago, there was a story in the London Times that surprisingly made international news. It was somewhat humorous, but also uh, very thought-provoking. A story about a Coca-Cola delivery driver who lost his job because he preferred Pepsi and insisted on drinking Pepsi at work. It was a classic conflict of interests, and the story resonated with people worldwide who questioned the legitimacy of the firing and the very nature of integrity. Today we begin a brief uh, three-part series on integrity because next month I'll be presenting the series in Africa before a group of uh, Zambian pastors as uh, as I gather with them to consider the topic of pastoral integrity. But before shaping this series for them in their context, I want to run it by you so that we can consider our integrity, each one of us consider our own integrity and the level to which you view yourself as a person of integrity. I want you to be thinking about that today and through the course of this series. Do I view myself as a person of integrity and why? What makes me think that I am a person of integrity? Over these next three weeks, we'll explore what integrity is, who it's for, and why it matters. Now, think to yourself, how do you define integrity? Just just to yourself, if you can quickly come up with a a one-sentence definition, how do you define integrity? I'll give you a couple seconds. Here's how the Oxford, the New Oxford American Dictionary provides these following uh, definitions, three of them. is Number one, integrity is the quality of being honest and having strong moral principles. It is, it is moral uprightness. Number two, integrity is the state of being whole and undivided. And then number three, integrity is the condition of being unified, unimpaired, or sound in construction. Like structural integrity. How do you define integrity? We assume and we expect it don't we? But sadly, those expectations often go unmet. And if we're honest, the expectations we have of others to be people of integrity, if we're honest, many times, sometimes, we don't even meet those expectations ourselves. But integrity is essential to anyone wanting to follow God and and make a a meaningful difference in the world, as Daniel did in the days of Babylonian exile. Daniel was a man of integrity. In fact, it has been said that Daniel's name is synonymous with integrity. And from Daniel chapter 1, our text this morning, we learn that integrity means resolving to follow God always, whether in good times or bad. Let's read this together, Daniel chapter 1, I'll read the whole of the chapter, verses 1 through 21. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, Youths "...without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate, and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king." Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah, and the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food. Or with the wine that he drank. Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king, who assigned your food and your drink, for why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So, So you would endanger my head with the king. then Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, he said, test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. And then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and, and you deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. Now, as for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill and all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding and all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them. And among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all of his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Let's pray. God, we want to thank you for our time this morning. Thank you for the gift of, of the church. Thank you for this wonderful privilege and opportunity we have again today to gather together in your name in this place to declare your worth and your goodness and kindness toward us, to receive what you have for us even today. Your grace just continues to pour out upon our lives. We're so thankful for this. Thank you for the moments we've been able to celebrate this morning as a church, just these seasons in life. Thank you for the story we're able to hear, uh, tell and hear this morning, uh, this this testimony of your work in in a person's life in such an obvious way that you broke through those walls, the walls that we so often try to put between us and you and by your love and by your grace, you broke through them and you brought a person to yourself. We pray that you would do that in each of our lives and that today we would receive life, all of the life that you have for us, Teach us now from your word, from the example of your servant, Daniel, and, and help us, God, to, to follow along his path. To the name and glory of Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen. The book of Daniel is uh, it's set in a world of dramatic change. Babylon had become the dominant force and King Nebuchadnezzar was enthroned above all earthly rivals. With his decisive victory over the uh, uh, Assyrian-Egyptian alliance at the Battle of Carchemish in early summer of 605 B.C., he advanced into the southern kingdom of Judah within two short months. The capital city of Jerusalem was besieged and the temple of God Uh, that iconic center of Hebrew worship and community was plundered. The temple vessels uh, that had been dedicated to God were removed and offered to Babylonian gods instead. The exile of God's people had begun and they abruptly found themselves living in a a vastly different world with a vastly different worldview. Honestly, not, not... Unlike our world today. Unlike the Assyrians before them, Babylonian strategy was to assimilate their foreign captives into their culture rather than expel or enslave them. Their thought was that by submersing the foreigners into their belief system, and way of life, they would effectively become Babylonians within a generation or two. And in verses 3 through 7, we observe some of the specific tactics Nebuchadnezzar employed. First, notice the selection process. Those whom the king targeted. Verse 3 says, Then the king commanded Ashpenaz... Uh, his chief eunuch to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility. You know, with subsequent invasions, nearly all of the uh, Israelites would be exiled, but initially only the best of the best were targeted. The influential leaders, the, the young leaders who showed great promise they were to be physically attractive. They were to be use of good appearance, because it seems that Nebuchadnezzar understood what, what we know today, what is commonly uh, uh, used today, that that the power, the persuasive power of appearances, they were to be intelligent. Uh, skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning—they were—they were only those, only those who were who were fit for royal service were chosen. They were to be without blemish and competent to stand in the king's palace. They were the, they were the cream of the crop. They were the best of the best. If Nebuchadnezzar could win the, the young leaders of the Hebrew world, those Jews, those whom the Jews already recognized and already admired, if, if Nebuchadnezzar could win them, then certainly he'd win the rest. after selecting such people, he he separated them from their familiar surroundings. He brought them from Jerusalem, which they knew, to Babylon, which they didn't. Uh, Somewhere between 800 to 1,000 miles stood between Jerusalem and Babylon, depending on which route you took. Imagine the trek across the Arabian desert as as the exiles processed what was happening. What would become of those left back at home? What awaited them as they journeyed onward? Imagine the impressive display upon entering the Babylonian capital. I mean, at that time, the hub of world power. There... In Babylon, people walked proudly with their heads up and their chests out, not cowering in fear, not fearing some invasion from some warring nation. Imagine catching the first glimpse of the king's palace, breathtaking, a symbol of opulence and global dominance. can only imagine how these things must have caught the eye of those young Hebrews back home. Their kingdom was in slow deterioration. Even before Nebuchadnezzar, Judah was subject to Egypt and was paying tribute to Pharaoh. But in Babylon, there was promise. I mean, even Assyria and Egypt bowed to Babylon. By separating the exiles from their home and introducing them to new surroundings, the, the Babylonians begin to erase traditional Jewish, Jewish belief and replace, replace it with something new, something enticing. Once selected and separated, the youths were schooled in the Royal Academy to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. They were to be educated For three years, we're told, before standing before the king for evaluation. And this was the very reason they were chosen to hold seats of authority within the kingdom. So for three years, uh, they were to study the languages of the day, Aramaic and ancient Akkadian. They were to become fluent in Chaldean speech. For three years, they were to study... uh, Chaldean literature and and learn Babylonian culture and customs and the implied promise was just very simple. You study well, study well and you will stand with the king. These exiles who had nothing back home, at least nothing in terms of power or influence, they could have everything in Babylon. Babylon. Such seduction was powerful. Not only could they earn the right to stand with the king, they were also allowed to taste the privileges of royalty while they studied. Verse 5 says, The king assigned them a daily portion of the food he ate and the wine he drank. Nebuchadnezzar, of course, he ate and drank whatever he wanted from the finest foods and wines, Uh, The young Hebrews had never tasted such things, but now they could literally eat like kings. The very food from the king's table was provided for them each day. You can imagine the allurement, right? I mean, especially for young people. It's as if the king was saying, hey, listen, we're not here to hurt you. We're not here to harm you. In any way, in fact, with us, you'll enjoy a life of luxury you never thought possible. And for many of the exiles, I'm sure, it probably seemed that Nebuchadnezzar could offer them much more in Babylon than God ever did back home. And finally, the indoctrination culminates with the changing of their names in verses six and seven. Their selfhood, their identity. The name Daniel means "God is my judge," but he was now to be called Belteshazzar, an apparent reference to the pagan god Bel. Yahweh me, or, or Hananiah means "Yahweh is gracious." But he was renamed Shadrach, which means at the command of Aku, uh, who was the Babylonian moon god. uh, Mishael means who is like God, but he became Meshach or who is like Aku. Azariah means Yahweh is my helper. But now he was called Abednego, meaning servant of Nego, likely referring to the Babylonian god of wisdom. So each of the four names, you'll notice, each of the four Hebrew names directly referenced God, while each of the new names invoked names of pagan gods. Not by accident. Day after day, these exiles, young and impressionable, were called by their new lames how long before they would begin to adopt them as their own. By changing their names, the Babylonians effectively sought to change their identity, their selfhood, attempting to remove all remembrance of God while transferring allegiance to Babylon and its pagan deities. So the young leaders from Judah were methodically brainwashed. That's what we might say today. They were specifically selected. They were then separated from their homeland. They were schooled in Chaldean language and literature. They were seduced by the allurement of power and prestige and their selfhood, their very selfhood was under attack. Even their names were changed to reflect a Babylonian identity. And the question before us today is what does integrity look like in a world like that? In a world like ours where we are also under constant pressure to conform. Daniel helps answer that question. Daniel's response in this passage reveals that biblical integrity requires heart-level conviction, personal holiness, and exemplary service. Heart-level conviction. Verse 8 begins... But Daniel resolved. To resolve means to decide in the heart. Or as it reads in the King James, Daniel purposed in his heart. It's what we would call conviction to be convinced of what you believe. Nebuchadnezzar could separate Daniel from his country. He could educate Daniel in Babylonian customs. He could dangle a seat in the royal court and all the luxury that came with that. He could even change his name, but the king couldn't change Daniel's heart or torpedo Daniel's faith. The other exiles, Daniel's Daniel's peers, and maybe even some of his friends probably thought these things were relatively minor. Don't want to make waves. Don't want to rock the boat. But Daniel knew that faithfulness in the little things is what solidifies a life of faith. Hudson Taylor once said, a little thing is a little thing, but faithfulness in a little thing is a big thing. For Daniel, this was simple, nothing heroic, just the willingness to stand by his conviction. You see, Daniel's resolve was personal long before it became public. If your faithfulness in God never penetrates your heart to take root in the core of your being, you will not stand when facing this kind of pressure. You will not. If you merely go through the motions of faith, then when the going gets tough, you will always choose the path of least resistance because in those moments, you're trying to fit in rather than stand out. But integrity means standing with conviction for what's right, no matter what. Many of you know the story of uh, Eric Little. familiar with this story. The Olympic sprinter from Scotland who was known as the Flying Scotsman. The dude was fast. He's made famous, of course, by the award-winning movie Chariots of Fire. For months, Little trained to run the 100-meter dash at the Paris Olympics in 1924. He was heavily favored to win. I mean, almost guaranteed. Just a near luck to win this race. And yet when the schedules were released, he learned that the heats for his race were scheduled for a Sunday. And because... Sunday is the Lord's day and because he held the conviction to not run on Sundays he withdrew from the race people were stunned many people called him a fool including those who had previously praised him but he stood firm And seeing that he wouldn't budge, yet knowing how popular he was, the Olympic Committee urged him to run the 400 meters instead, a race he'd never considered seriously, but one that was scheduled for a weekday and therefore wouldn't compromise his conviction. So he decided to give it a go, and despite very little training at that distance, he went on to win gold and set a world record in that event. But Olympic glory isn't what drove him. What drove Eric Little was his faith in the Lord and his uncompromising spirit. I think as Daniel thought about his situation, he realized that it wasn't about Babylonian privilege. It wasn't about Nebuchadnezzar or the Babylonian people. It wasn't about the other exiles, what they were doing, how they were responding. This was about him and God. It was about standing before God with conviction, even if it meant standing alone. He stood with conviction. Secondly, he stood with conviction in the pursuit of holiness. Again, verse 8, Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Now, why this? Was it a matter of Jew- uh, Jewish dietary law that the food was ceremonially unclean? No, because wine was not prohibited under the law. And later in chapter 10, the text suggests that Daniel ate wine or ate meat and drank wine uh, with, a, with a completely clear conscience. Was it a matter of of not eating food that had been offered to idols. I doubt it because if that was the case then presumably the vegetables would have been off off-limit as, limits as well. Did Daniel do this for health reasons? Probably not. It's an odd time to go vegan. And again later he ate meat and drank wine without issue. So what was it? Why is this the line he drew? I think it was a matter of loyalty and consecration to God. I believe Daniel saw through the king's attempt at seduction in the the desire to win the exile's loyalty. Therefore, for Daniel to partake of these luxuries, food and wine in this case, would mean sharing his loyalty to God with the king. For Daniel, there was no compromise in attending the Chaldean University. His studies would serve him well and, and even enhance his understanding of the culture in which he now lived. And there was no compromise in being given a new name. The Babylonians could call him whatever they wanted. He knew who he was before God. But if he were to take the king's food and and wine, especially in these early stages, it might appear to the Babylonians and to the other exiles that his loyalties were compromised. And you see, Daniel wasn't looking to pick a fight here. He was just pledging his highest loyalty to God by consecrating himself in this way. Holiness. But I want you to notice how he took his stand, which I think is as important as the stand itself, with great humility and tact, and genuine consideration of Ashpenaz's dilemma, Daniel proposed a workable solution, a 10-day trial run, basically. And he also took full responsibility for his own actions. And I think there's a lesson for us here. Because, loved ones, we need to remember that pursuing holiness means owning your own consecration to God. It's not about what everyone else is doing. The seemingly small areas of compromise that everyone else is okay with, it's about what you choose to do at any given moment. Daniel was consistently the same person. He wasn't one thing with his... Fellow Hebrews and another with the Babylonians. He didn't behave differently when things weren't going well. Ask yourself, am I a different person at work or school than I am at church? Do I behave differently when with non Christians than I do when? with other believers? Am I one person on the internet or behind the wheel of the car or at a party and someone entirely different when I'm at Bible study or a prayer meeting? Daniel was consistent in his consecration to God. It wasn't a holier-than-thou, I'm-better-than-you sort of way, but in a way that pursued holiness and avoided even the appearance of evil. I like this definition from John Stott. Stott says, Integrity is the quality of integrated persons in whom there is no dichotomy between their public and their private lives, between what they profess and what they practice, between their words and their deeds. If you've ever watched a TV show or a movie, I know you have, where the audio doesn't match the movements on screen. Or where the words being spoken don't match the lips and mouth of the person speaking. That's what it's like when our lives as Christians don't match the message we claim to live by. It's comical to some, but irritating to others. After all, the greatest indictment against the church is the hypocrisy of her members. The Bible exhorts us to watch our lives, to pay careful attention to ourselves, to, cle- te- to keep. Close watch on how we live to keep ourselves on the straight and narrow, so that we aren't condemned or disqualified by the same gospel we proclaim. Right? Isn't that what the apostle Paul said in the Corinthians? He said, "I beat my body, I make it my slave, I discipline myself, so that after I've preached to everyone else, I'm not disqualified." By resolving to not defile himself, Daniel's integrity revealed an underlying pursuit of holiness that characterized his life. It's worth considering, each one of us, it's worth considering where we are in this same pursuit. Verses 17 through 21 tell the rest of the story, the outcome of this episode. For three years, Daniel and his three friends attended Nebuchadnezzar's academy, and they graduated at the top of their class. When the time had come, they were brought before the king, and among all the exiles, none was found. Like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, even those who were already employed in the king's service didn't measure up to the standard these four young men had set for in every matter of wisdom and understanding, it says, in every matter of wisdom and understanding, the king found them 10 times better than everyone else. It reminds me of the Apostle Paul's uh, counsel to young Timothy when he said, listen, don't let anyone look down on you because you're young, which basically means don't let your youth be an excuse for bad behavior. Don't let anyone look down on you because you're young. Listen, Timothy, you need to set the example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith and in purity. When Nebuchadnezzar observed these four men, that's what he saw. He saw men who who not only set an example, but set the standard by which everyone else is compared. And Daniel, according to verse 21, uh, I love this, this sentence here, Daniel remained in service to the kings of Babylon until the Medes and Persians came into power, which occurred in 539 B.C., under King Cyrus, which means, church, that Daniel served Babylon so well for over 60 years that every successive king from Nebuchadnezzar to Nabonidus to Belshazzar wanted Daniel in his court. I need Daniel by my side. In other words, Daniel's character, his integrity, was characterized by exceptional service. You see that? Exceptional service. Is it your practice to serve others exceptionally well, even when they don't believe or behave as you'd like? You understand, that's, the, that's the, the, the position he was in. How do you respond to others who don't share your worldview? Will you still serve them? Or is your reflex response one of syncretism, separatism, or what I call supplantism. Syncretism means to walk in sync with the culture, to go with the flow. As many of the exiled youths did in Babylon, but the Christian life, you know, is not intended to sync with secular society. We are to be in the world, but not of the world. On the opposite end of the spectrum is separatism. Separatism means to separate from those who don't share your beliefs. Separatists disengage. Usually, usually they disengage in fear of contamination. And they lose sight of Christ's call, his command to go into all the world and make disciples. The third common response is what I call supplantism, meaning that, that rather than sinking with or separating from the world, we try to overthrow and supplant it by force. Like the zealots of Jesus' day, supplantists are usually marked by bitterness and brooding anger. They believe that unbelievers are the enemy and that secular society is to be conquered. Daniel teaches another way. He did not rise in forceful opposition against Babylon, nor did he withdraw from Babylon, nor did he walk in sync with Babylon. Instead, amazingly, he served Babylon by faith in God. And notice, it wasn't with the bare minimum he gave them the best he had. He served them exceptionally. He trusted God in Babylon and therefore served the Babylonians well because that's where God had placed him. Do you realize that wherever you go and in whatever you do, how you handle the small and even irritating things? how you respond to people of all kinds. Difficult people, awkward people, people who don't believe like you, argumentative people, contentious people. How you respond to people of all kinds. How you communicate the words you use, the emails you send, the texts you send. All of this, how you serve others, is a reflection on your service to Christ. In fact, Colossians chapter 3 says, Whatever you do, work heartily, whatever you do, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. And then, just to clarify any ambiguity, uh, Paul says, You are serving Jesus. Whatever you do, this is his argument. Whatever you do, wherever you go, do it with your whole heart for the Lord because that's who you're serving, the Lord. So how does integrity or what does integrity look like? For Daniel, it meant standing with conviction. It meant pursuing personal holiness And it meant serving with excellence wherever God places you. Now, I have one more small section, one more final thought I want to share with you. And I know we're going a little bit over. But I think just like God prepared Eric Little for a distance he wasn't used to, And found gold in that distance. I think there's gold if we give another 10 or 15 minutes to this passage. See what I did there? For for Daniel, integrity meant standing with conviction, pursuing personal holiness, and serving with excellence wherever God places you. which is another point to be made, that it was God who gave Daniel his abilities and God who placed Daniel in Babylon to further God's divine purposes. Ultimately, the story of Daniel is about God. It's Daniel's story, obviously. But in the end, it's about God's sovereign grace at work in Daniel's life. From the start, from the opening verses, Daniel recognizes that God is in control and that God is gracious. Verse 2, right? Verse 2, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. From a human perspective, it appeared like Nebuchadnezzar was in charge and that his God, by plundering the Jewish temple, was in control. But Daniel says, no, 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 no. It was the Lord who delivered Judah into Babylonian possession. God was in control. God was at work. God was working His purposes to perfection, even using wicked nations to accomplish His desired end. Though it appear, though it may appear otherwise at times, God is working all things for the good of those who love him and are called by him. Daniel understood that God reigned over Babylon just as much as he reigned over Judah. Verse 9. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. I think when he recounted that scene, Daniel just knew, he knew... That there was only by God's grace that Ashpenaz was sympathetic toward him and his request to not defile himself. He knew that God had gone before Daniel and was working in Ashpenaz's heart in such a way that that this chief of the eunuchs actually began to feel for Daniel. One gets the sense that Ashpenaz genuinely cared for Daniel's situation, and all of this because God gave Daniel favor. In his eyes. It was all grace. Verse 17. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill. God did it. God gave them learning and skill. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. So let me ask you, what do you have that you have not been given? Sure, maybe you've worked hard. Many of you, I assume, we, we work hard. You've earned money, enough money to purchase this or that, but where did the ability to work come from? Where did the skill and strength by which you do your work come from? Where did the opportunities to work come from? Who opened those doors at just the right time so that you could meet just the right individual? God. Just as God gave them favor with the Babylonians and gave them learning and skill with which to do their jobs to such a high standard, so has God been gracious with you. My barber, some of you know him. My barber is a perfect illustration of this. He's a Christian brother. He truly believes that God, he truly believes that God called him to cut hair. He's an Armenian man. And from his early 20s, he trained under a master barber in Armenia In 1996, he came to America to make a better life for his family back home. He had only 200 U.S. dollars in his pocket and didn't know a word of English. Now, nearly 25 years later, he's brought over his wife, and together they are raising four children. He finally, after so many laborious years, he finally was able to bring over his mom, His oldest daughter is graduating from UCLA this month. He put her through college. And he still sends whatever he can to his extended family back home. I've seen, I've been with this man for about 20 years now. And I kid you not, every time I sit in his chair, he reminds me that it is all from God. His ability to cut hair Is from God. His ability to know how to cut different heads of hair is from God. The ability in the fingers to hold the scissors and combs and brushes and snip snips, it's all from God. And He wants everyone who sits in His chair to know that God is gracious. That's what Daniel wants to. Daniel wants us to know that his story and whatever integrity you see in his life, it all owes to God and to God's sovereign grace. Because it's only by God's grace that we could begin to reflect His character. Integrity is resolving to follow God always, in good times or bad. At a time when his country was overtaken by wicked men and all hope appeared lost, Daniel remained faithful to the Lord. With great resolve and trust in God, he stood by his convictions, he pursued personal holiness, and he served exceptionally well. knowing that that's where God had placed him. Daniel remained faithful to the Lord and made a difference wherever he went. May God help us to do the same. Amen. We thank you for our time, Lord. please continue to impress these things upon our hearts for my own life and for these, my brothers and sisters. God, would you help us by your grace, would you help us to be men and women of conviction? By your grace, would you give us, would you renew our pursuit of holiness to see Help us, Holy Spirit, to see those areas of compromise in our lives. That we would compromise no more. And then with the gifts and skill and talent you've given us, will you please help us to serve others exceptionally well? Even those who don't believe or behave as we'd want them to. Give us the faith to know that we are where you have placed us. And that in the end, end we're serving Christ. Do this, we pray, for the glory of his name. Amen.